I have the benefit of having my bookmark already in that passage. I'll give you a moment to flip there. Again, John 15, 26 through to 16, 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember what I, that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you are going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. Would you join with me in prayer? Our God and our Heavenly Father, too often we underestimate the gift of the Holy Spirit. We attempt to rely on our own wits and our own strength and do things under our own steam, but God, you have given us your Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would give us a reliance upon the Holy Spirit that extends beyond our own ability. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill and move us in ways that we, we cannot even comprehend. Lord, it has been a, a strange year, a year that has left many of us feeling out of place and uncertain what to do or where to go next. But Lord, you are not uncertain about your plan for us. And you have promised that you will lead your people if we are faithful to rely on you. My God and our Heavenly Father, as I looked around our church this morning, I was struck by the blessing that so many churches are getting older and older and not seeing younger members join. And then other churches are 
getting younger and younger, full of young families, but without the blessing of the wisdom and the age that comes with the experience of this life. But God, you have given us a church that spans so many different categories of the human experience. We have the very, very young up to the very, very old. We have the races of the world beginning to be represented among us. Lord, we thank you for the diversity that you've given us in this church of experience and age and race and gender. Lord, you've you have displayed your creativity and your handiwork among us. And Lord, we pray that we would not miss out on the benefits of that. And God, I pray for the pastors around Canada and the world today. As weak as we've paid close attention to the issues facing Grace Life Church, and Pastor James Coates and his wife Erin and their family. Lord, we intercede for that family and that church this morning. God, that Pastor Coates might be released and allowed to minister your word as you have called him to do, that he might do so faithfully. And Lord, until that time, we pray that you would lift up his family, his wife Erin and his children, that you would give them a supernatural dose of your peace and your strength to weather this trying time. And for Grace Life Church, for the eldership of that church, we pray that you would cause them to be faithful to, to your word. That you would, cause, you would cause them to have even greater zeal for your truth. God, we do not pretend to know all of the right answers in these times. But we know that our brother is suffering. We know that our brother has been taken from our, his family. And we just ask that that would end now in Jesus' name. That he would be released. And Lord, as we continue to try and navigate these, these murky waters, we pray that these issues which can be so divisive in very groups such as ours, that you would give us one mind that we might together give you all the glory. Lord, that these issues, whether it be gathering and restrictions or vaccines or any of these other issues facing us, Lord, that they would not serve to drive a wedge between brother and sister, but that we would be faithful in engaging these, these topics and that we would be gracious to one another in our disagreements and that we might thank you for the areas where we are in full agreement. God, you have cared for and protected us in this time. We pray that that provision would continue 
And should it not be in your will to continue that, we pray that you would prepare us for whatever you have that is to come. Lord, as we worship in a limited capacity, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are at home, that are joining us online. God, we ask that by work of your Holy Spirit, they might be joined with us in a unique way. And in your will, they might be able to join us in person far sooner rather than later. That you would be a work in the hearts and the minds of our government officials to recognize the value of your people worshiping together. Lord, we live in a world that is hostile to you, so it is only by a work of your spirit that that could ever come about. Lord, in all of these things that are far greater than we can wrap our minds around and understand, we trust them into your care, knowing that you are good and you are faithful and you are sovereign, that none of these things have caught you off guard or left you looking for answers, but you all, in all of these things, have ordered them just as you have planned. And may we be encouraged by that, that our God is bigger than all of the circumstances that we face. May these things cause us to turn towards you and glorify you, and to cling ever tighter to your word, and to value the time that we have with our brothers and sisters in the church. Lord, in the resolution of all of these things, we ask that your Son would come again soon. That we might be able to see the day where we, we get to walk with you and see you face to face. As we continue to worship this morning, we ask that you would speak through our brother, Pastor Jim, that he, as he preaches on gospel, John, that you would be preparing our hearts to understand these things. There were so many situations where the disciples required extra teaching to understand the words of Christ. And Lord, we pray that by the gift of your Holy Spirit, you would cause us to understand as Christ caused the disciples to understand. And that it wouldn't just be head knowledge, but that you would apply it to our hearts and cause it to change the way that we live and the change the way we act. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
of saying that Pastor Josh included in his prayer those who are very, very old. I was waiting for one more very, and then I was going to get up and leave. have the text in front of you that was read so well for us. I just want to remind you of the main theme. The main theme uh, has not changed from last Sunday. The main theme is how Christians need to understand and respond to the world's hatred. Last week I concluded the message by going to some teaching of Christ and Peter giving very practical ways of how we're to respond. I didn't mention uh, what was to follow because that's this Sunday's message. It's really a continuation. <clears throat> how are we to respond to the hatred and the persecution in the world? And I have three points from the passage that was read for you and uh, I hope to cover each one of them. First point is, don't stop witnessing. They all are don't words. Number one, don't stop witnessing. Second, don't fall away. Don't fall away. And the third is, don't ignore the Holy Spirit. Don't ignore the Holy Spirit. Before I dive into those three points, I'd like you to look at the, the text of Scripture in front of you. And I would like you to look particularly at verses 4 and 5. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Before we jump into the, the main points, I want to deal with that statement that Jesus makes to the disciples. It's a, there's a requirement for us to do a little technical work here. Jesus clearly says, none of you asks me where you are going. The fact remains that in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter asked him, where are you going? The fact remains that in chapter 14, in verse 5, Thomas said, where are you going? And now Jesus says, none of you have asked, where am I going? Why should I make this a point before I preach the sermon? Um, for two reasons. Number one is this text is used by critics to disprove the Bible. So you should be aware of it, and you should be aware of how to answer it. Those who apply themselves to what is called textual criticism will say this is a clear contradiction and therefore, like pulling a fabric out of a um, 
Boy, you know what? I just realized I don't know what you'd pull the fabric out of. What do you call it? A quilt? A stitching? Every, you pull it out anyway and it falls apart. I'll Google it this afternoon. But if, if this is a contradiction, the whole system breaks down. So we need to know what's going on here. Jesus says, none of you ask me where are you going. The second reason that I want to bring this to your attention, and I don't want to take a lot of time, this gives me an opportunity as your pastor to help you become better students of the Word of God, to understand the work of interpretation and application in a better way. I don't do this <clears throat> unintentionally. In fact, if you listen carefully to uh, sermon after sermon, I'm always throwing in hermeneutical hints to help you. But we ought to be a mature church that can open a text of scripture, read it and understand it, and apply it. The job is just not for the pastor and elders. The job is all our job. So this gives me a little chance to give you a couple of hints that you should be aware of. And particularly in this case, we don't talk about it. Okay, let me do this quickly. None of you ask me, where are you going? The key verb in that sentence is the verb asks. Asks. It's a simple Greek word that you don't need to remember, eroteo. And the thing is that every single one of you could go to a Strong's Concordance, a Greek lexicon, an interlinear Bible, and you could look at that word and you'll see that it's exactly that word, eroteo. But what is important for the understanding of this text is simply not the meaning of the word. And so my first counsel to all of you is, never go to rest on simply the meaning of the word. It's that for two reasons. Number one, in foreign languages, meanings are broad. Context is always the key to the meaning of the word. Always. And that context can be the immediate context, how it's used throughout the Bible, and even the whole theology of the Bible. Secondly, the word itself, particularly in these original language, requires the understanding of a tense or a mood. If you had the resources available, like I have, I have this wonderful software program. I just take my cursor and put it over the word asks, and it comes up arrow, tail, and then underneath I'm given valuable information, and you have this resource available to you in even hard copy or online. I learned that this verb, is present active. That means that a paraphrase of this verse is Jesus saying, 
But now I am going to him who sent me, and, and none of you are keeping on asking me where I'm going. They asked and they stopped asking. None of you continue to ask me where I'm going. Here's an example that may occur in your home, in your marriage, or somebody's marriage. You can well imagine that in the tension or friction of ordinary marital life, one spouse may say to the other, you never tell me you love me. The other spouse says, duh. Told you I loved you when we got married. Now that's intended to be humorous because you know that what the, what the spouse that is, has this anxiety, what they're really saying is, I don't hear you constantly telling me that you love me. They know as well as you know that you, you've told them that. But their heart is saying, you stop telling me. Okay? Jesus is saying that here using the present active tense of the verb. He's saying, you're not asking me anymore about where I'm going. That answer satisfies the critics. And I hope it helps you to see how important this is. Now, the point is, does that evidence bear fruit in the very context? And the answer is yes. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? And then in verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. What's Jesus doing here? He's saying, I, you asked me where I was going, I told you. But now you've stopped asking me about that. All you're doing is worried about your own sorrow and your own pain and your own loss. But if you would keep asking me where I'm going, you would see that it's an advantage that I go. In fact, you would rejoice with me. In other words, he's saying, disciples, if you would go back to the original question about where I'm going and make that our focus of conversation, you won't be quite nearly as sad as you are. Do you see that? So the, the verb, the tense, and the context are all confirming that's the heart and mind of Christ. Ask about me. Ask about where I'm going. Ask about why I'm going there. Ask about what's going to happen when I go there. And your hearts won't be filled with sorrow. In fact, you will rejoice. Okay, number one. Don't stop witnessing. I get this from verses 26 and 27 in chapter 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, 
He will bear witness of me, and you also will bear witness, will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Folks, follow the logic here. Jesus has told them already, as we covered last Sunday, that the world will hate them because the world hates Christ. But the logic here is Christ is going. He's leaving soon. He's leaving the world. And the answer might be, well, then maybe the hatred will stop. Maybe people will start liking us again. The answer is no. And the reason is because when Jesus goes, he will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will keep witnessing about him. And you will keep witnessing about him. In fact, both of those statements are really one reason. The Holy Spirit can certainly give testimony to Christ without the church. Possibly. But the church cannot give testimony to Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit. So the answer that Jesus is answering to this inner question, well, if you're going away, then persecution ought to cease. And the answer will be no. Persecution will continue because the Holy Spirit filling his church will still provide witness and testimony to Christ to the world. And the hatred and the persecution will continue. You're all familiar with Acts 1.8 where Jesus says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And it's God's choice that he doesn't have another plan. It's God's choice that he doesn't have plan B or C or D. In Romans 10, 14, we have the, this question, how then will they call on him in whom they have believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Church, can we nail this down just once and for all? The Holy Spirit is very capable about going in the, through the world and bypassing you and me and every other believer. In theory, the Holy Spirit is very capable of saving all of God's elect across all nations, across all times. But it's not been God's plan to do that ever. His plan is to use you and to use me and to use missionaries and gospel preachers and faithful witnesses to him. For whatever it is in his wisdom and his understanding, God has determined that the nations would know about Jesus through the spirit-empowered witness of the church. There is no plan B. That means for you and I, practically speaking, that despite the persecution and despite the hatred, we're not to stop witnessing. We're not to stop proclaiming Christ in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The second thing that Jesus teaches in this passage, I've entitled, Don't Fall Away. I get that from the first seven verses that was read for us in chapter 16. Why is Jesus being so explicit about the persecution and hatred that's to come upon the church? Why is he making what he's already called a narrow and difficult road even more scary? Well, earlier he said in the Gospels, he said that which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? In other words, what Jesus is doing here is helping us count the cost. Can you imagine, as I look among mature believers this morning, can you imagine sitting down with somebody and having the, the, the privilege of sharing the gospel with them, but loving them so much to say, hey, before you make that final decision, I need to tell you that at this moment on, the world is going to hate you. The world is going to persecute you. The religious institution that you're part of right now, they're going to kick you out. And some people are even going to try to kill you thinking that they're doing God's will. About your head and ask Jesus to come into your heart. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's laying out before the disciples the title of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's great book, The Cost of Discipleship. He's saying, let's be real about this. You're going to be persecuted and hated, and some of you are going to die. And I say these things to you, Jesus says in verse 4, so that when it happens, you know that's already under my sovereign care. When it happens, you know that this isn't, this isn't an accident. When it happens, you know this isn't just a circumstantial thing. When it happens, you know that this is part of God's plan for the world and for your life. In other words, by telling the disciples the truth, Christ is mercifully equipping them so that when the time of their persecution comes and their suffering comes, they can have comfort in knowing that this is all part of a wise and loving plan and they don't fall away. They don't turn to God and say, hey, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> In fact, all along the way, they're being prepared that to follow Jesus Christ is going to cost. Isaiah 46 says, For I am God, there's none other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. We serve a God 
who has determined all things from the beginning to the end and all the little places along the road. It's all under God's sovereign care. And in mercy, Jesus tells his disciples and by the Holy Spirit telling us today that all who are godly will suffer. So when it comes, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you, Peter says. Do not be surprised. This is all part of a loving Heavenly Father who has a clear plan. And although we may not totally comprehend it in this life, we will understand it at some point. Look at verse 4 again just before I leave this point. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you know his beloved Jesus only gives them one hour. You are an eternal being. But persecution is only one hour. Their hour. I love that phrase. I'm going to talk about that as I conclude. Those who persecute the church are not on a free line to do what they want, when they want, for as long as they want. Jesus has said, I'm giving you an hour. One hour. You're still under my rope. Just like he said to Satan and Job. Yeah, okay, I'll let you do this, but you can't do that. Jesus has given the persecutors of the church one hour. Now, I'm obviously speaking metaphorically. But he's given them one hour compared to infinite that's not a very long time. So Paul could say, I, I consider the sufferings of this life nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. You see what's happening in the scriptures? It's only one hour. I've known people to put up my preaching for an hour. I mean, anyone can do it. No, I don't want to minimize the suffering of the church. But please understand from perspective of an omnipotent, sovereign God. I'll give you one hour with my church, and after that, she's done. And does that not encourage you this morning? So don't fall away. It's only an hour. Don't stop witnessing, and don't fall away. You know the truth. If you're going to live godly, you'll suffer. But in God's great infinite economy, it's only an hour. Thirdly, don't ignore the Holy Spirit. Don't ignore the Holy Spirit. Picking up in verse 5 of chapter 16. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me where you were going, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has come. I still have many things to say to you, 
But you can't bear them right now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are come, and so on. Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit in the world in two ways. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, number one, He will come to convict the world. The key verb there is convict. He will convict the world. And the second job of the Holy Spirit is to guide believers in truth. So there's the encouragement that Jesus is giving to his disciples. So we better not ignore the work of the Holy Spirit in all this conversation. Number one, he's the one that's going to convict the world. And he's the one that's going to guide us into all truth. As I've hinted at before in other preaching, the word convict is a very, very intentional word. It's a word that means apply a guilty verdict. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes men and women feel guilty, feel shame, feel helplessness before God. And he does this in three areas, you'll notice. He will convict the world of sin. In other words, the Holy Spirit is coming as the divine prosecutor. And he is going into the world and causing men and women to feel an absolute weight of guilt and sin before God. A sense of hopelessness, a sense of helplessness. Why? Well, Jesus says because they don't believe in Him. I'd love to spend some time here, but I won't. When, people, when God grants people faith to believe, it's then they realize their sinfulness. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's coming into the world to convict the world of sin. And the reason is because they don't believe. The, you, you take that sentence and you look at it the way it's intended. It means that if people would only believe in Jesus, they would understand sin. So the real issue in the world is not acts of sins. You're a swindler, you're a cheater, you're immoral. I mean, that's a huge problem. I'm not minimizing. The real problem in the world is unbelief. When people turn to Christ, knowing who He is and what He has to offer, John 4, the issue of sin becomes dealt with. So the Holy Spirit in His power comes upon men and women and, and they feel the awful weightiness of their sin. And they need a Savior. And through our witness and the witness of the Spirit, they're given hope in Jesus Christ. That's why, beloved, it's not a good answer when you ask someone, if you if they're going if they think they're going to go to heaven and they say well i hope so or i think so i think i've done my best 
That's a very poor answer. I grew up in the days of revival meetings in churches. And I sometimes wonder, I'm only asking the question, I'm not, this isn't a blame question, I ask the question, where do we see people come to Christ today absolutely smitten and broken for their sin? It's a missing thing in our lives. It could be one of the reasons we proclaim a false gospel. Come to Jesus and he'll fix your job. Come to Jesus and he'll repair your marriage. Come to Jesus and, and he'll help your finances. Come to Jesus and you'll feel better about yourself and your esteem will go up. Come to Jesus instead of saying, come to Jesus and he will take away that weight of sin that's bearing you down that you can hardly sleep in. The Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin. Secondly, he comes to convict of righteousness. The world needs the Spirit's work in righteousness. The world thinks that God grades on the, on the curve, as we learned in school, that, you know, man, Jim's done the best he could. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10 as an example. Romans chapter 10. Paul is addressing his brothers according to the flesh, the Jewish nation. In verse 3 he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It's my opinion that's true of Jew and Gentile alike today. There's an attempt in the world to establish their own righteousness. They decide what the standard of holiness is. I haven't killed anybody at least. I try to do my best. And the Holy Spirit comes to a person and convicts them of the reality. That God demands perfection. Be ye perfect, even as I am perfect, says the Lord. Seek peace and holiness, of which none will see God without. The Holy Spirit comes to people, convicts them of their sin. He also convicts them of their righteousness. And he reminds them that their righteousness is just like filthy rags. Your attempt to make yourself better is only like filth, filthy rags. He also convicts them of judgment. Verse 11. He convicts them of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. The world took Jesus eventually put him on a cross and crucified him, judged him, judged him and condemned him to death. But do you know what happened on Calvary's cross? 
Satan was judged and condemned to death. And the Holy Spirit reminds people of that. At the, at the cross, it was the prince of the power of this world that was actually judged. The whole idea of judgment that was realigned at Calvary. The world thought they were judging Jesus, but in fact, Jesus was judging the world. And our world needs to see that and understand that. The only way that's going to happen is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of judgment and realize it was really them being judged on Calvary's cross, not Jesus. At the end of the day, men and women will either stand under the judgment of Satan or they'll stand under the victory of Jesus. There's only one of two places to stand. So the Holy Spirit has been sent to the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But the Holy Spirit has also been sent to the church in verses 12 to 15. I won't read it again. But Jesus says, I have more to tell you and you can't bear it. That gives us a hint, brothers and sisters, by the way, that even though the Bible is inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient, it doesn't contain all the wisdom of God in His infinite glory. But it's enough. There's a lot more that we could know and understand. And Jesus reminds the disciples of that. He reminds the disciples that there's more wisdom, there's more things. But contrary to knowing everything, He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into truth. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't take it right now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, He is the one that will guide you. The Holy Spirit's going to lead them into a fuller comprehension of His teaching. The Holy Spirit's going to lead His church into a deeper understanding of who Christ is. You'll notice what was read for us. He will come to glorify Christ. That becomes a... A, a criteria in observing the work of the Spirit. Did what take place bring glory and reveal Jesus? Or did something else happen? And thirdly, the Holy Spirit would come and enlighten about events to come, things that would come and things that would take place. Now you've just received greater insight this morning than most people. You just heard the three points of next Sunday's sermon. Because I want to I want to rest on this a lot more than just rush through this morning. I want to take some time. So you can be thinking as you prepare for next Sunday as I follow through on this message that that we're going to be looking at what the Holy Spirit is intended to do in the church through leading His church into truth, greater comprehension of truth, greater understanding of Jesus Christ, and a revelation of things yet to come. We've covered a lot of detail fast. Those who live godly will suffer. Don't stop witnessing. 
Don't let that close your mouth. Secondly, we've learned with explicit detail there could be dire hardships upon the church at any time. There, are, there has been and there will be. But you know about it now. And when it happens, you won't be surprised. And you'll be able to rest in the eternal plan of God. Thirdly, don't forget the Holy Spirit. It's His job to convict the world, not ours. And He can do it a lot better than we can. He uses the gospel that we preach to do that. But it's His job to go into the heart of hearts, into the intentions of the mind, and point out sin, righteousness, and judgment. When the Holy Spirit came upon the group that Peter preached to at Pentecost, do you remember what they said? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter, brothers, what shall we do? That's how the Holy Spirit works. We provide the gospel. He does the work of conviction. As we leave this, I'd like to leave with you an, an application, I hope, of encouragement. I want to go back to the statement that I made, that, or that Jesus made, that he told the disciples these things, so that when their hour had come, they would remember what he had said. Jesus limited the work of persecution to an hour. If you turn to Revelation chapter 6 in your Bibles, if you turn to uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 6, and this will be my last point, it's intended to give you an encouragement to take from this message. Revelation 6 verse 9. Here we have a picture of the martyred saints. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how holy and true, how long will you judge and before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Do you see that, folks? I've taught you before that the book of Revelation is written in recurring themes. There's a recurring story that's repeated seven times. You have your Bible open there. Look at Revelation 7. Look near the end of Revelation 7, which is the end of this one. Revelation 4 to 6, 4 to 7 is one picture. 
from the time of Christ to the end. Look at the end. For the Lamb is in the midst. He will guide them the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear of the eye. John is seeing the end of time. He's seeing, he's seeing the final end. But just before the end, John is given a vision of martyred saints under the altar. And they're saying, Lord, how long are you going to do this? How long do we have to permit? You, you said it was an hour. Boy, it seems a lot longer than an hour. And the answer from the throne comes. When all your brothers, whom I have determined who will die, are killed, then it will. Do you understand that God has a control on this? Do you understand with vivid detail that there is a leash on evil? Do you understand with distinct clarity that the times of suffering and persecution in the church are defined with a beginning and an end by Almighty God. And the scriptures make that so blatantly clear. Persecution will start, but it will end. And that's the encouraging story. That's the end. When all the brothers who I have determined would be killed are killed, then the end is the end. Evil's not in charge of this world, brothers and sisters. Evil is not on the throne. Evil can only operate if it's given permission to operate. God has determined, predetermined, the duration of suffering. And when God calls suffering to end, it will end. Let me address someone who might be listening or someone here. And you don't know if Jesus Christ is your Savior this morning. You're not certain that you have been brought into a relationship with Christ. I want you to know this morning the good news. That God loves you so much that he sent his son to this earth. Fully God and fully man. And he lived the righteous life that you should have lived and I should have lived. And if you put your faith in Him, He will give you His righteousness and you won't be able to stop trying to get your own righteousness. And that same Jesus went to the cross and died the eternal death that you and I should have died. And if you put your faith in Him, He will forgive all your sins, past, present, and future. And you will be eternally justified and free of condemnation. You will become part of a church that throughout the world has been hated because of their faith in Jesus. And because of your faith in Jesus, you may suffer. 
you may lose friends. Family may turn against you. Employers and employees may hate you. But someday that will end. And when you are gathered together with Christ and all the saints of all the ages, you will sing with all the saints. It was worth it all. It was worth it all. If you've never put your trust in Christ at any time, would you do that this morning? Would you turn from your wicked, sinful life and turn to the only one who can save you from this life and the life to come? Let us pray. All the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who has been your counselor? Who has given to you that they might be repaid? But to you and through you and for you are all things. And to you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, my brothers and sisters, and hear God's benediction? From Titus 3, verses 4 to 8. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and, the re and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. Now watch this. Here's the benediction. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. May the Lord bless you.